0: Chapter six, Matthew chapter six. Today we are commencing a series that will go for eight, nine, ten weeks. I'm not sure exactly yet, but it's going to be between eight and ten weeks on the Lord's Prayer. In fact, when I started at Cornerstone ten years ago, I started with a series on the Lord's Prayer, and so it's it's a real joy to me to begin uh, what I, I hope will be another ten years of ministry at Cornerstone with a series on the Lord's Prayer. So please have your Bibles open at Matthew chapter 6. And uh, a special welcome to any visitors we have with us today. It's, it's great to see you, and we hope for the opportunity to, to meet you after church. Some years ago, I heard a voice voice coach teaching us about the importance of, of posture and how important it is when you are public speaking Uh, to stand with your shoulders back and your head high. And I realise now that I've said that, you're going to be uh, looking very carefully at my posture. And what this coach suggested is that we should all look at three-year-olds, three-year-old boys and girls. And she said, look at the three-year-old, look at the way their shoulders are thrown back and their heads are high and they strut around like little kings and queens, don't they, of all that they survey." Now, why is it, why is it that the three-year-old walks around with shoulders back, heads high, with such confidence? Well, it's because they haven't hit 12 yet. They haven't hit 16 yet. They haven't hit 21 yet. They feel, at the age of three, very safe, assured, confident in the care of mum and dad, but by about the age of 12, having been uh, battered, by the cruel words and actions of others, the shoulders begin to slump, the head drops, the hair falls across the eyes, and we have a completely different posture before the world. Even mum and dad let us down, and this contributes to a different posture. Now, for some Christians, this, this kind of posture of the, the, the slumped shoulders the dropped head, the hair across the eyes, perhaps it sounds all too familiar to you. The trials and attacks of the world have been beating you down. And the worries that you have for your health, your family, your study, your career, your church, the worries you have for this world are bowing down your shoulders, weighing down upon you, and your spiritual shoulders are slumped, and you have little confidence and little joy in your Christian life. Now, if that sounds familiar to you, if you feel that spiritually you are in this posture of depression, and there's no confidence, and there's little joy in the Christian life, then what you urgently need to hear is the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is going to be so vital and important for us. Let me read it to you from Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, where Jesus said, This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven... Heavenly Father, speak to us now, we pray, by your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the early church father, Tertullian, said that the Lord's Prayer is a short summary of the entire gospel. And I have to disagree with that. I think that it says a great deal about who God is, It says a great deal about humanity, Christian anthropology, if you like, but it doesn't tell us very much directly about who Jesus is, his person, or his work. So I would disagree that the Lord's Prayer teaches us everything that we need to know about the Christian life. It is, however, an extremely important part of Christian thinking and Christian life. In fact, as you look across the history of the church, whenever a great teacher of the church has written a catechism for the church, there are always three documents that they include in that catechism. What are they? The Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, and the Lord's Prayer. Christian teachers across the centuries have seen that the Lord's Prayer is an essential part of what every Christian needs to know. And unlike the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer is God-breathed. The Apostles' Creed is not God-breathed. It's a wonderful summary of Christian faith, but it is not inspired in the way the Lord's Prayer is. The Lord's Prayer comes to us directly from the lips of God. It's a prayer that God himself, the Son of God, teaches us to pray. Now, we're going to see that the Lord's Prayer is a very precious gift for God's people. But let me say right now, it is not a gift for everyone. The Lord's Prayer is not given to everyone. It is given to those who have come to see their sin, who have come to see their, their spiritual bankruptcy and poverty. It's given to those who have come to God for mercy and forgiveness, and redemption. It is given to those who have looked up to Jesus Christ and have held on to him for salvation and life. The Lord's Prayer is not a prayer given to everyone to pray, but to those who have come to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. Now, as we look at the Lord's Prayer, we see that there are two main parts to it. We see that there is an address, our Father in Heaven, and we see that there are six petitions, six requests. The Westminster Larger Catechism describes prayer as pouring out our heart's desires before God. And so in the Lord's Prayer, we see those six petitions the six prayers that we should be pouring out of our heart and we're going to look at those six petitions in the coming weeks but for today we're looking at the address where Jesus commands us to address God as our father in heaven and in fact there is so much to to think about it, Those few words are so rich and so important that today we are simply going to stop and dwell on those astounding words, Our Father. Next week we'll look at Our Father in Heaven. And we'll see that both of those parts of the address are critical to our Christian thinking and understanding. But today we're looking at Our Father. Because what Jesus is is telling you, brothers and sisters, is that you are to stand before God and you are to look up to Him as your Father. Jesus is saying, when you stand before God and you look to Him, you are to say to Him, you are to pray to Him, Father, our Father. Now, We are so used to that. But let me remind you that in the Old Testament, God is described as Father only 15 times. 15 times in all of the 39 books of the Old Testament. And God is never addressed as Father in the Old Testament. He's described as Father, but I cannot come up with one example of a a person in the Old Testament who looks up to God and prays, Father. And so, try to get this. Just just, just imagine yourself on that mountain. And, And Jesus is seated there on the mountain. And he is teaching us, and he's teaching us how to pray. And he says, when you pray, say, our Father. And it's astonishing because no Jewish person had ever prayed like that before. No one in the Old Testament had prayed like that. And what Jesus is saying would have astonished his disciples. It would have astonished his audience that we are now to call God our Father. And if only we could recapture Some of that astonishment, how extraordinary and precious it is to be able to speak to God, the creator of the universe, in that way. What does it mean? What are we we saying when we come to God and address him as, as our father? I want to say four things briefly about that. To address God as Father is to stand before him as the one who made you. You're standing before the one who made you. You know, every human being has the right to call God Father in one sense. In that, God has made every human being. Every person on this planet has been made by God. And in fact, more than that, what? They actually bear his image. The most diehard pagan still bears the image of God and was made by God. And this is the great tragedy of the human race, is that God made us and we refuse to recognise that. We don't see that, we don't... We shut our eyes, blind ourselves to the the one whose image we bear. Every human being has God as their father in that he has made each and every one of us. But for the Christian, it goes infinitely beyond that because we address God as father in an infinitely more immediate and deeper and supernatural sense. Because if you're a Christian, then not, not only did God make you, but he remade you. You've been born again, Jesus said. There's been a new birth, a new you. You look the same on the outside, but there's a new you on the inside made directly by God. There's been a new birth. And I, I'm old enough now to remember a time where the church distinguished between Christians and born-again Christians. Who else can remember that that dreadful time? Dreadful because there's no such thing as a Christian who is not born again. If you're a Christian, you are by definition born again. You are a new creation, Paul says. And so when you pray to, to God, Jesus said, He's your father in that he made you, but he's he's your father many, many times over again because he's given you a new existence, a new you. John chapter 1. To all who received Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will but born of God. Something supernatural has happened in you. If you've come to Christ in repentance and faith, something that the world could never have done has happened to you and within you. God has made a new you. And here's your father by virtue of your new creation. Stand before him as his child. Born again, a new creation. This is what Jesus is commanding us to do when he says that we must address God as our father. Don't forget who you are. Born again. Secondly, stand before God as the one who loves you. Now, almost all fathers love their children, but what a flawed and broken down love this so often is. I'm right in saying that, aren't I? I think every dad would agree. Our selfishness spoils our love for our children, makes us neglectful. We break our promises. I can remember my dad promising things and didn't come through with it. I thought I'll never do that. But we all do. We break our promises, sometimes because we don't want to keep them, sometimes because we can't keep them. In any case, we fail. We fail to protect our children the way we ought to. And let's remember that God loves his children with a perfect, steady and unfailing love. God is not like a frail, earthly father who has so many failings and flaws. He loves his children with a steady and unfailing love. Now, because you are Presbyterians, I know what you're thinking right now. You are thinking, well, half of you are thinking, don't call me a Presbyterian. (laughs) But the other half, who who, uh, don't take offence at that, are thinking, well, when, when the preacher tells me that God loves me, yeah, I know what he means. I know what he means. He means that God will give me what I need. He'll uh, take care of my needs, much like, a, say, a, a stereotypical Victorian father, right, who makes sure that his children receive the best education and the best nannies and the best riding instructor, and go to the best boarding schools. But there wasn't much affection. That's the stereotype Victorian father. Making sure their children get the best of things, but there's no affection there. They don't really want to be with their children. In fact, they're quite relieved when they go off to boarding school. And as Presbyterians, when we hear God loves us, my impression is that we go to that kind of fathering. Yes, God loves me. I, I get that. He, he makes sure that I, I get the best things. He's not going to withhold any, any good thing from me. I'm going to come to that, back to that in a moment. But does he like me? Does he want to actually be with me? Is there actually any affection there? Well, yes, there is. Your heavenly father likes you, has tremendous affection for you, and wants to be with you. He's not just a father who makes sure all the boxes are ticked, but he actually has a deep affection for you and loves it, when you come into his presence. When Jesus says, come before God and lift up your head and say, our Father, that's what he wants you to, to know. He wants you to know that God loves you and has tremendous affection for you. Can I prove that? Absolutely. Let me just give two examples. Psalm 149, verse 4. The Lord takes delight." In his people. Let me say that again. The Lord takes delight in his people. And he crowns the humble with salvation. When you address God as Father, you are addressing the God who takes delight in you. And Zephaniah 3 verse 17, the Lord will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. There's delight, brothers and sisters. Don't our minds go right now to the prodigal father. We can call him the prodigal father, can't we? Because of his, his, his prodigious love for the son that returned home When the son returned home, what happened? Okay, yeah, your bedroom's still there. You'll still get your three meals a day. We'll make sure all your needs are taken care of. Good to have you back. Not not at all, right? Runs to meet his son, hugs him, embraces him, puts a ring on his finger, the best cloak, the fattened calf is slaughtered, a party is held because the father has this tremendous affection and liking for his son and is thrilled to be in the presence of his son. And this is exactly what Jesus is saying. When you pray to God, Father, think of the prodigal father. Remember those tremendous affirmations in God's word that he delights in you. Doesn't mean that he doesn't grieve for your sin. It doesn't mean that he won't discipline you for your sin. In fact, he disciplines you because he loves you. But he has tremendous affection and we are to come before him with that kind of confidence. Thirdly, and I've touched on this already, stand before God as the one who will give you every good thing. I know I've already said it, but I I need to re-emphasize this. He will stand, you stand before the one who will give you every good thing. Now, look, look at Matthew 6 there. And you'll see that Jesus teaches us the Lord's Prayer within a particular context. He's addressing a problem here. The Lord's Prayer is a corrective to a problem. In fact, two problems. What's one of them? Well, first of all, the Lord's Prayer is a corrective to the problem of the, uh, the person whose religious life, their prayer, their fasting, their almsgiving is done for what? It is done for show. What does Jesus call them? He calls them hypocrites. Literally, the word hypocrite means a play actor. Think of the Greek actors. They wore those big masks, didn't they? And some had a big frown on them, some had a big smile on them. You saw what was on the outside of the mask, but what was inside could be quite different. And Jesus said, well, there's a problem because there are, we we see these Pharisees, we see these religious people, and they are giving, but they're making sure that everyone notices they're giving." And they are praying, but they make their prayers long and their their prayers are really made to an audience. Not to God, but to an audience. Yeah, and and they they fast, but they want everyone to know that they're fasting. And so they put on sackcloth and they, they frown and they go around, oh, I'm so hungry. It's so hard, this fasting. You know, they want everyone to know. And Jesus is addressing this problem of false piety, the Lord's Prayer is a corrective to that. It's a simple prayer that corrects that. But what's the other problem? It wasn't just the, uh, the Pharisees. It was also the Gentiles, the pagans. What does Jesus say there? Look, look there at verse 7. And when you pray, do not keep babbling like pagans. Why do the pagans pray to their gods with so many words? babbling on and on and on. Why are they doing it? Because they think they will be heard because of their many words. And Jesus is is saying, and he's saying to you and me, maybe you're like that. Maybe you think that God is a reluctant God, a tight-fisted God, and that the only way you're going to break through to him is if I pray on and on and on and on, and I say the right words in the right way, use the right formula to unlock the heart of God. And so Jesus is addressing this problem. He's saying that that there are many people who look up to God and they they see a reluctant God, a God who doesn't want to give. But what does he say there in verse 8? Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. You don't have to come with a 3,000-word prayer, an essay to God. You don't have to do that. He knows your needs and He's not at all reluctant. He wants you to have everything that you need. He wants you to have the best. And that's why That's what we ought to keep in mind when we look up to God and say, Our Father, we are not praying to a reluctant God, but a God who wants us to have every good thing. Paul said in Romans 8, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Listen to the wonderful logic of the Apostle Paul. God has given you his son. He's given you his son to die on a cross. Is he going to withhold anything else you need? He's given you his son. This is the logic of Paul. And this is what Jesus is saying. When you pray to God and look at God, Look at the one who's already given you what is most precious, most valuable, his son. Do you think he's going to withhold any good thing from you? Do you think he's going to be tight-fisted? Do you think he's going to be hard-hearted, reluctant to answer your prayers? He is going to give you exactly what you need and the best of what you need. Yeah, I'm having a hard time right now, preacher. You don't think God knows that? You don't think that what you are going through is exactly what you need right now because he is a good and a wise father. Yes, but he hasn't given me this. Why hasn't he given you this? Because he knows that that is not what you really need. In fact, it could be very harmful. Brothers and sisters if you are walking around with a chip on your shoulder as though God has dealt you a a bad hand, you need to come back to the Lord's Prayer. He's your Father. He loves you, has affection for you. He's already given you His Son. And He will not withhold one good thing from you. Fourthly, very briefly... Please, please note there that Jesus does not teach us to pray my Father. We could pray my Father but what he actually teaches us to pray is our Father. Christianity, my Christian faith is not me and the Lord. It's we and the Lord. We're we're, we're together. We pray, we look up to our Father, alongside our brothers and sisters, there in our minds, there in our hearts. There's the vertical relationship with God, but there's this critical, horizontal relationship with our brothers and sisters that the Lord's Prayer emphasises. We pray to God as our Father. And so, if you've come this morning with your head bowed down, your shoulders hunched, you lost your confidence and your joy in your Christian faith. Well, if you have put your trust in Jesus, and Jesus says, throw your shoulders back, lift up your head, look up to God and say, our Father, our Father, because he made you twice over, You're his new creation. He loves you and has tremendous affection for you. He sings over you, celebrates you, because he sees in you the work of his son. And he will never, ever, ever withhold one good thing from you or allow one thing to happen in your life that is not for your best and is not for the best of those around you. Pray to God as Father. And I want us to keep this in mind in a moment as we come to the Lord's table. Our musicians are going to come up now. We're going to sing, Just As I Am, and then we'll come to the communion table together.